Now grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one in the uh, chairs in front of you, uh, every other chair. And we're going to be turning to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3 in our series called Entrusted. And we're going to just continue to move through the book. We're um, about the halfway point of this book, and we're making our way through First and Second Timothy. So we'll see how long it takes us to get through, but um, we're, we're making some good progress here. And as you, as you turn in your Bibles, First Timothy 3, we're going to just read verses 14, 15, and 16. So as you get there, would you please stand um, in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? Again, that's First Timothy 3, 14 through 16. This is the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." Let's pray. Father, this morning as we await what you have to say, we ask that you would open our ears, that we would hear. And, and then, Lord, would you um, penetrate your word past our ears, past our mind, and get it down into our hearts, into our very souls, that you would speak um, this morning. Pray that, that you would be heard, and um, we ask that you would do your work by your spirit in hearts those that need to be encouraged and uplifted this morning and those that need to be um, convicted and challenged. And Lord, for those this morning whose hearts are not yours, we pray this morning might be the morning that your spirit moves in them and that they are born again, that they would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, that he would save them this morning and give them the gift of eternal life. And Lord, we pray that you would do this, not only at this church, but at all gospel-believing churches um, in our area. And we pray for revival, that your Holy Spirit would fall, and that there would be um, much turning to Christ, more baptisms and testimonies of your grace. Lord, this morning we ask again that you would make your word and take it to be effective in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, well, we got some work to do, only three verses, but a lot of stuff to cover in those three verses. But I want to start out by, by saying something that we're probably all familiar with. I hear it from time to time here in the church, and it's generally uh, something like this. <gasps> you did that in church? Or you said that in church? And, and generally that happens in this building, in this sanctuary, whether it's the neighborhood kids or some of our own kids saying, you said that in church, or you know, you lied, or you told a, a joke that maybe a little questionable or you're running around not doing what you're supposed to do in in the building in this church and i, I remember um that a little bit as a kid too to don't run in church don't run around in church um and we hear that from time to time and i think that there's something like that we think sometimes is extra wicked about being bad in here like oh we're in we're in here now so we can't be bad anymore um, there's something different about it. And I want to be careful um, to respect the facilities that God has given to us. But I, I really want to um, caution us. Uh, if that's you, if you've said that or you've thought that recently, um, we need to be very careful. Uh, sometimes it subtly lets us get away with things outside of this building. Right? So I have to kind of shape up, behave here, because I'm at church, and I need to look a certain way. But when I get outside the walls, there's a little more grace, 
we have this kind of concept that something is, is more holy about this place. And I think that can lead to self-righteousness. I think that can lead um, to some pretty uh, bad things in our lives. In the New Testament, the church is not the building. Um, they didn't have church buildings. Uh, the first church building that we know of was not until the, the early 3rd century. So this word that we've read this morning is not about behaving. You'll see that word in the ESV, behaving in the household of God, which is the church. We're not talking about the building. Now, certainly you should behave in this building. We, would, we wouldn't like to have holes in the wall and people doing things they're not supposed to be doing in this room. But the New Testament church is the people of God. And the building is merely where the people of God gather. And in some places around the world, there is no building for the people of God to gather they meet under a tree, or in a cave, or in a forest, or as is as, as the case in lots of places, in a house, or in a, the patio of a house. So I'll bring that to our attention this morning because I don't want us to see this verse and say, oh, we got to shape up and behave in here just because we're in a certain building, the church building. Folks, if this, if this building burns down tonight, Village Bible Church still exists. Village Bible Church is right here in us and the people that God has brought here and saved. We're called to live like we've been changed, not like we change ourselves when we come into a building. We're to live like we've been born again, like we're new creations, like we're the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ. That is to govern our actions, not, not where we are at in a building. And so as we move into what Paul has to say here, I think that's vital because we can get so confused in our age that we're going to church. I don't think that's a wrong phrase. I told that to my daughter this morning. We're going to church. Yay! We're going to church. Um... But this would not necessarily be church in the eyes of God if no one else was here. <laughs> um, this is a building that houses the Church of God Village Bible Church. And really what this means is that we need to live what we believe. And that's the title of the, the sermon this morning, Live What We Believe. I thought about putting live what you believe, but the, the we includes all of us. Live what we believe. And so let's dive in and take a look at what Paul had to say here in First Timothy 3, verses, verse 14. Uh, we've talked in the last few weeks about qualifications for deacons and deaconesses. Before that, we talked about elders. Before that, we talked about the roles of women in the church. Before that, we talked about ro- roles of men in the church. We talked about prayer in the church. Um, these are all the things that we've talked about as we've moved into this section of Scripture. Uh, and so that's really important to remember. So you may even right now, as I'm talking, flip back and look at some of the, the headings in your Bible. Um, look back at some of the notes you've made. And then we're also going to look forward this morning because this passage is, is the center or, or the, the hinge on which the book turns. Um, so it, it looks back to what's been written and it looks ahead to what's been written. And it really stands as kind of the high point of the book. Everything leads to this and everything flows out of this section. So look at verse 14, and here we'll see Paul's travel plans. If you're taking notes, that blank is Paul's travel plans, verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon. And that you is singular, so he's talking to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. And he says, I hope to come to you soon. And we've talked about this before, that this is a letter to Timothy. Um, this is part of the pastoral letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus. First and Second Timothy, of course, written to Timothy, Titus written to Titus from Paul. But it's also important to remember that this is probably meant for the church as well. So it's it's specifically meant for Timothy, but it seems from lots of things in the book that it's meant for the church at Ephesus as a whole. And as we've talked about before, Paul mentions it at the beginning of the book. We're going to talk about it next week specifically. There are false teachers 
in the church at Ephesus that are leading the church astray. And so Paul writes to Timothy as the pastor, the elder of that church. And he writes to the church as well to show them how they ought to behave. But Paul meant to come personally. And, and we see this throughout Paul's letters in the book of Acts is he was a traveling apostle who established a church and moved on, raised up leaders, moved on. And so he hears of the problems going on in the Ephesian church. He spent more time with the Ephesian church than he did any other church in his ministry, at least two and a half years on his missionary journeys. And so he is planning to come, but he says this to Timothy, I am writing these things to you so that, and this goes into verse 15, if I delay. So Paul's intention is to come. And from what we can discern about Timothy, this would be probably pretty encouraging for Timothy. Timothy is a younger man. We'll see that in chapter 4, that he's not to be looked down on because he's young. Um, he's a younger man. He seems in some places maybe to be a little bit more timid. He needs some instruction and some boldness. And so Paul is saying, I'm coming to you which would have been a, a good encouragement for Timothy to hear. Yay, my mentor, um, the, the Apostle Paul, is coming to visit. His, his intention is to come. Now, we don't know if he ever made it. Um, we talked about this at the beginning of the book, talked about the setting of 1 Timothy probably being, after, being written after um, Paul's incarceration in Rome the first time. Um, it seems from history and the end of Acts that, that he may have been released and then done some more travels, and then been arrested again, and Nero um, beheaded him uh, in the, the, late, the mid to late 60s AD. So that's kind of the setting here, just a reminder of where we've been and what's going on. But Paul has travel plans to come. And you'll note the, the phrase, these things, in verse 14. Look down and see that. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. In the Greek, these things is the very first word in the sentence. Uh, and so in Greek, you can move things around and it still makes sense. You can't do that in English very well unless you're Yoda. But you can put these things right at the beginning of the sentence and say, this is the important thing here. These things. And it refers to basically all that's gone before and probably all that's to come, but specifically chapter 2 and chapter 3 because we've got how should prayer be handled in church? What about the men? What about the women? What about the elders? What about the deacons? So those are the things that we've covered in the last month. And that specifically is probably what he's thinking when he says these things. But it also refers generally to the whole letter as he gives instruction on how the church ought to function, on how false teachers um, ought to be confronted, and different things. We're going to talk about how the widows were supposed to be dealt with, how to pay your pastors, how to deal with the rich in the church and the poor in the church. Um, These things are all to come. So it's important to see what these things are talking about. Um, Paul's concern here is more personal. So at the beginning of the letter, he's very personal with Timothy. My beloved child, he uses tender words for him. He reminds him of their relationship. And then he gets into the business of the letter. Um, and it's more third person. And now he gets back in to, to talking to Timothy personally, saying some things to Timothy. And so it's important to see that, that Paul is Timothy's father in the faith. Um, and, and this is kind of the setting for what he's about to say. The end of verse 14 is important. And we love these phrases when we're reading the Bible because they really help us. I am writing these things to you. What are the next two words? So that. Yay, a purpose clause. It tells us why he's doing what he's doing. Why is he writing? Well, he says, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. And that leads us into verse 15. You got some blanks um, in your notes. But verse 15, I put the church's behavior the church's behavior. And we've got to be really careful when we think about this because we can immediately go to only rules and regulations. Behave, right? Behave. 
Okay, don't act up. And that is definitely uh, in here, uh, but it's, it's more general. It's how do you live? Um, how do you live as one in the church? So, in verse 15, the church's behavior. Number one, Christian conduct is not optional. Some of your uh, versions say conduct, not behave. Uh, but Christian conduct is not optional. You'll note in verse 15, in the ESV, it says, you may know how one ought to behave. Um, ought is not a suggestion or, or optional, okay? So sometimes we think of that. Like if I say, hey, you ought to consider going to this college or you ought to consider stop eating that because that's not good for you. If I, if I do that, I'm making a suggestion. But this ought is not a suggestion. It's not optional here. Paul is using a word that means it is necessary. It is necessary. So you, how you, how one ought to behave, how one should, how one must, how one needs to behave in the household of God. Paul is calling for behavior that's consistent with what it means to be a part of God's family. So we do this too, right? That's not how a Gilmore acts, right? We don't do that in this family. We, we use those kinds of phrases, right? You know, that family may do that, but the Nagis do this, right? The Morentuses do that. We, we have family identity. This is who we are and this is how we act. And so what Paul is doing here is, is pleading with Timothy personally, but then also for his teaching ministry and for the church to hear this. This is how you must be because you're part of God's family, which he's about to say. And so we got to be careful. This is not optional and this is not merely follow the rules, Okay, this is, this is how you ought to behave. This is how you can be consistent with what you say you are, with what we say we believe. How do you live what we believe? So that moves to number two, this church and every church. And so I mean by that, the Ephesian church in this letter and this church, Village Bible Church, this church and every church is family. This church and every church is family. Now, this morning, some of you don't believe that. And this morning, some of us have given you reason not to believe that. But this is an objective truth. This is objective truth. This is not merely if I feel like family. I remember um, my little brother, he's not so little, my little brother Scott is here. And um, I remember being... (laughs) Being, um, I'm three years older than him, and I would say things sometimes that would make him mad or do things that would n- be the older brother picking on the little brother. And I remember him saying things like, I'm not your brother anymore. <laughs> um, and I was making him feel like he was not, like he didn't want to be a part of this family because I was in it. Uh, and so we do that to each other, don't we? we? We make each other feel like we're not part of the family or not being treated as family Nevertheless, because Scott said that he wasn't my brother, didn't make him not my brother. Now, I needed to act like I was his brother, um, but that's, that's what's going on here. So we are family. Again, this is emphasized. This is not the gathering. This is not the building. Right? The building is not the church here. Look at verse 15. You may know how one ought to behave. Where? In the household of God. And this, this in, in the King James, this verse uh, it says house of God, but it, again, it's not talking about the, the physical building. It's talking about the household. In fact, if you go back up and look at the qualifications for deacons and elders, you'll see the same exact word. So look up at verse 12 for deacons. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households. Well, go back up to the overseers or the elders list. You see that um, the elder must keep his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own 
household, how will he care for God's church? So we, we even see the picture already before us in the passage. Isn't that great when you're going to go back up and look and say, oh, that's what he means. Because clearly it doesn't mean the elder has to paint his house really well and make sure that everything's in order and that everything's running right as far as physically. Now, it's good to keep your house, but he's talking about the household, the people. And in the Greco-Roman time, the household was not the nuclear family like we're concerned with. Okay, the, the household in the Greco-Roman and even in the Jewish context was the extended family that, that lived together. And it may have even included slaves and servants, maybe even employees, depending on what the person did. So household here is kind of like this, this holistic family metaphor that means all the people living together. And so everyone had responsibilities and everybody had roles and everybody had things that they needed to get done, just like in your family. Except this was a little bit more extended. So that's the picture we get here of the household of God. It's important to see that because this leads into him talking about the church. But as we talk about the household, one picture I want you to keep in your mind is interdependence. Okay? Not independence. Interdependence. Meaning we are all dependent on each other. Go to 1 Corinthians 12 and look at the picture of the body. Right? If the eye and the ear decide they don't want to do what they're supposed to do, we have a problem. Um, if different parts of the body decide that they don't want to be that part of the body anymore, we have an issue. And so we are interdependent. This household of faith, this household is interdependent. We are interdependent. I need you. You need me. We need each other at Village Bible Church. And we see that in, in an expanded view when we go on mission trips. Right? When, when, we, when we worship together, or, or um, when Amy and I lived in Israel for a semester, we worshiped at a church that the pastor preached in Hebrew, and there was a Chinese translation, a Russian translation, and an English translation going on all at the same time. And it was really cool to see, I, know, I knew Heather would like that, it was really cool to see the family, the household of God. We could not communicate with each other, but we were all um, being taught together and serving together as, as the church. Well, that moves us to number three. This church is God's church. It's important to remember. We use terms like my church, which is, which is fine. That's how you identify it. Where do you go to church? Well, my church is Village Bible Church in Garden Grove. Uh, but we need to be careful that, that this has not become a club. Right? So, so church is not a, not a club where you can, hey, I'll walk in and join the church. Um, now, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to encourage you to join the church. But, but this is not merely... Um, the Elks Lodge or the Lions Club or Kiwanis or something. This is, this is more than that. This is deeper than that. This is God's church. And, and the word for church, we see that used in verse 15, which is the church of the living God. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia, and it means called out ones. It means called out. And so in this, in this Greco-Roman context, it was very obvious, right? Nobody had ever preached the gospel because the gospel just happened. Right? So Paul gets to Ephesus and preaches the gospel, and no one's ever heard of this before. And so it's a very distinct community. The church is called out from the pagans, from the darkness, into marvelous light. That is what the church is. They're called out ones. Um, the church consists of those people who've been called out of the world and into the church. So when you became a Christian... It was more than just you becoming a Christian. God was saving you from your sin, saving you from death and Satan and hell, but he was also saving you into the church. Okay, so you were not just saved and then, okay, now you're, now you're good. No more hell. 
Have fun. No, he, he brought us together into, into the church. And we even see that as stories of how some of us came to this church, how we were brought to this church. God brought us here to be with each other, to be God's church. And, and that's going to be an emphasis um, later on in the book as well as we talk about elders again. Um, but this is God's church. It's good to remember that. God is the one who has established this church. God is the one who, for as long as he is patient with us, will allow us to remain a church. Number four, not only is this God's church, but this God is alive. This God is alive. You see that there in verse 15, which is the church of the living God. This is an Old Testament picture. This is used 15 times in the Old Testament. My favorite story in the Bible, David and Goliath. Um, David says to Goliath, you have defied the armies of the living God. Um, David uses that um, to throw back at Goliath saying, you're not just messing with us, you're messing with God. And our God is alive. And that's what we celebrate, right? Isn't that why we're here on Sunday? It's the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. Our God is alive, amen? And so we see this in several locations, but I really wanted to go to one in the Old Testament. So turn your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Use your table of contents if you need to, but it's, it's right after the book of Isaiah. Go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10. Uh, there are passages like this throughout the prophets. If you read through the prophets, you'll see this come up again and again. But the emphasis here is that God is alive. He is the living God. And I want you to notice how Jeremiah makes this point. Jeremiah 10, we're going to read the first 10 verses. Jeremiah 10, starting in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity, or like the book of Ecclesiastes, they're like a vapor, a mist. A tree from the forest is cut down. See the picture he's, he's, he's painting for us. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So, so the first part here is, this is kind of ridiculous. Where's your God? Well, I went out into the forest, chopped down a tree, uh, hired this guy to make sure that, you know, he got the bark off and made sure that all the knots were out. And then we kind of decorated it and made it look nice and pretty. And that's our God from the forest. Okay, that's the picture. And then verse 6 leads into this. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instructions of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Upaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. You see this throughout the Old Testament. Our God is alive. Their gods are dead. Their gods are just made from things that our God made. 
See, they, they took what our God made and made it a God. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. They turned from worshiping the creator and began worshiping the creature. They got it wrong. They, they mixed it. They mixed it up. And so our God is living. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, the author says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not fearful to fall into the hands of a dead God. He can't do anything. He's just a piece of wood or, or a stone. But the living God creates fear. And he's not only the living God, but he's the God who gives life. God gives life to all. The reason you're breathing is because God gave you breath. The reason that, that we're here is because God has given life. And not only that, God gives new life. He gives the life that we need, the spiritual life, the eternal life that we need to be in his presence forever and ever. That is all that's, all that's encompassed in, in this church of the living God. This is a dynamic thing, not a static thing. This is, this is a God who moves and acts and lives and breathes life into his church. And, and this appeal to the living God was especially important for the church at Ephesus. They were surrounded by rampant pagan worship. You remember back to when we were going through the seven churches of Revelation and Ephesus is the first one. And Pastor Ron showed some pictures and talked about the town of Ephesus. Um, but Ephesus contained um, the temple to Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about that in a second. But this was, this was a temple to a goddess, right? And, and then there were add-ons to that temple. It said, oh, let's worship this Caesar, and let's worship this Caesar. Let's keep adding on. And there were worship of all kinds of gods and goddesses in the town of Ephesus. And similar to what we studied in Colossians, there were also this belief in spirits. So you even had some people that wore amulets or wore charms in order to ward off spirits of certain intersections of streets or of rocks and trees and streams and skies. And so there was this, this awareness of this supernatural world that we're, that we're blind to most of the time. We're very mechanical. And these people were very spiritual in that they were, they were recognizing realities or unrealities around them. But our God reigns. Psalms says, the book of Psalms says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Dead gods don't do what they please. Dead gods don't do. The living God does. So it is good to remember. It is also a fearful thing to remember that the God who dwells among us, among us, right? Us. Um, he's in this place because we're in this place because he indwells his people. Um, he does not indwell this building. And so God is here among us, which is a fantastic thing because he's a living God. But it's also a fearful thing because God is the father of this family and the father of the family deals out discipline in order to make sure that behavior is up to standards. So it is not only a great thing, it is also a fearful thing that God is living among us. Consider both of those things this morning. Well, we need to move on to point number five. The church supports the truth. Go back to 1 Timothy 3. The church supports the truth. We see this picture as, as Paul goes from household family language um, and then talks about the church, the called out ones. He moves lastly to a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the first thing we need to note about this phrase, it says a, not the. So the church is not the pillar and buttress of the truth as if the truth depends on us. The truth is true. It's true truth. And it's true because God has made it true. And it's true because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
But the church does support the truth. It's a pillar and buttress. And so there's debate about what exactly these words mean, but they're architectural terms. So I thought Brian would, would like that. And Brian, could you come up and give us a... No, just kidding. I'm talking about pillar and buttress, or some of your verses say pillar and foundation or, or bulwark or um, some of these, these, these uh, construction terms. I, I want to show you a picture of a pillar. Uh, this is from... Um, Ephesus. This is from the remains of the Temple of Artemis. By the way, another picture of um, dead gods and living gods. That's the, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, folks. Weeds, and they had to piece that thing back together. Some of that's not even the original pillar, right? But this picture, do you see the people on the bottom right? Some of you can't see them. <laughs> that's because they're small. And that's because that pillar is huge. At the Temple of Artemis, in Ephesus, there were 127 pillars like this. Um, some of them were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold, and they held up a massive building. Again, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. is huge, uh, renowned for the architectural work. So the pillar, here, here's one of them, and there were 126 more like this. So you just get a picture of what a pillar is and what a pillar is built to do. Um, so this is not like one of the poles outside that kind of holds up parts of our church. <laughs> that's a huge pillar, and it is holding up a massive thing. So when Paul says that, that we're a pillar, that means we're, there's some support there. And then buttress, the next word, maybe, maybe like foundation, there's, there's a little bit of hesitancy to say exactly what it means. It might just be a synonym, where Paul's just using two words to say the same thing, supporting the church. Whatever the case is, the architectural language here is that the, the church is a support for the truth. So uh, I want you to, to look back at the verse, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The, again, like I said, the truth is true no matter what. And, and we're going to talk about that, by the way, in the uh, Truth Project series that we're going to be doing in a community group. But the truth is true. And here's the deal. When there's a pillar and a buttress supporting the truth, it can be seen. Do you see that? It can be seen from further away. It can be prominent. Now, it's still the truth if it's laying on the ground. But if there's a pillar and foundation and a, and a building under it, then the truth is, is made known. It's, 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 in a sense, proclaimed. Right? It's like a billboard on the side of the freeway. Before that sign gets up there, it's just it's kind of rolled up in, in a truck. But when it gets put on the support for it, then everybody can see it. And so the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. In that, we show the world the truth. So the, the, the behavior here means that our behavior ought to be one that supports the truth in a way that we proclaim it and show it in how we speak, think, and live. So we have this awesome responsibility. Now, now again, it's not, the truth is not conditioned on us. It, it doesn't change if we mess up. But it is not known if we do not hold it up. And, and that's why we must send preachers. Right? Romans 10. How they know unless someone preaches to them. How they know unless they're sent. How they go unless they're sent. And so we, we as the church want to just continue to build pillars and buttresses that, that, that show the truth to the world clearly. And this is a world that needs the truth clearly. They need it. They need to know it. They need to see it. We're confused. Is there truth? What is truth? So Pilate said to Jesus, the church's job, one of them is to support the truth. Also, many commentators would say here that the truth, because of the definite article, the truth could also be distilled down to the gospel. 
And he talks about that. We've talked about that already in this book. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And so the truth here is what we're supporting, the gospel. The Ephesians would have been very used to these terms because not only was there a huge temple in, in Ephesus, but at the time that Paul wrote this, there was an expanding, booming population. There were immigrants coming from all over the world to get jobs. And so there were building projects going on all over the place. So they would have been very familiar with this language of pillar and buttress. Well, we need to, we need to move on. And, and he moves now to verse 16. And depending on what version you have, there are a lot of different ways that this is translated. So how many of you have an NIV right now? Raise your hand. How many, anybody have a New Living? Anybody New Living? Okay, a few. Anybody New King James? King James? Okay. And others that I haven't mentioned? All right, good. Lots of, oh, I'm sorry, NASB. That probably is a good chunk of you. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that this first phrase is translated. Um, but we're going to just use the ESV here and I'll maybe refer to some other um, synonyms. But moving to verse 16, which is the church's confession. The church's confession. The first word here is great indeed we confess in ESV. And those four words are one word in Greek. Okay, it's one word and it means to say the same thing. And so that's why the ESV says we confess because a confession is a group saying something. So you think of maybe the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, something that we all say together akin to the Pledge of Allegiance sometimes. Right? We're all saying the same thing. We're agreeing on the same thing together. So that's the picture here. Um, great indeed we confess. Um, this, is, this is a big deal. This is of magnitude. This is weighty. And Paul says, Great indeed we confess, and then he uses this phrase, is the mystery of godliness. And we talked about mystery last week because deacons are required to hold the mystery of the faith. And if you read throughout the Apostle Paul's writings, through his letters, he talks about this word mystery. In Greek, it's mysterion. And it doesn't mean mystery like if you go to the section in Barnes & Noble that's mysteries. Okay, I mentioned this last week. It's not, it's not um, reading Agatha Christie, okay? Uh, the, the word mystery actually means something more like open secret. Like it's, it's something that was mysterious and now has been made known. But if you don't know it, you need, to be, you need to be told that it is now known. And so there's different ways of talking about it in Paul's writing. Sometimes he's speaking of the truth that, wow, the Gentiles get included too. We didn't really figure that out with the Old Testament writings. The, the, the Gentiles are grafted in to this seemingly Jewish religion at first. Um, other times it's exclusively used of Jesus. That well, Who saw this coming? God was going to come and become a man. Um, this mystery has now been made clear. So although there were prophecies and there were hints and there were foreshadowings in the Old Testament, boom, New Testament's made clear because Jesus comes to earth and explains it and lives it. So what is this mystery of godliness? Well, he explains uh, what, it, what it is. I mean, well, he's not, I'm sorry, he doesn't explain it. It is explained um, by looking at the Greek. And it's very clear that this is some kind of poem or creed or hymn. And that's why in a lot of your versions, it's kind of broken down text. It's not in the same lines. It's kind of broken out like a poem would be. And there's, I read this week, all kinds of different ways to take this. It's, it's just um, six separate lines. It's... Um, 
two sections of three lines. Uh, we're going to go with its three couplets. Okay, so that's your second point there. It's an ancient Christian creed or hymn, and it is likely organized in three couplets. It, it, there's, there's debate, is this, is this the whole thing? Is this part of the hymn? Whatever the case is, this early on in the church, the church had already put to music, or put to poetry at least, um, the truths that they believed. And, and that's why we write Christian music. We put, we put Christian songs out there, ultimately, that, that put our, the truth that we believe about the Bible in song. And in fact, one of the things that we're required to do, we're commanded to do as the church, is to sing. Um, in the New Testament, God tells us we need to sing together. So singing is not something that, that one church does because they like it because people like music. Um, music is something that appeals to us as humans because it helps us to express things in different ways. Right? So some of you are very musical. Like, and you'd rather write a song than write an essay because that's how you express yourself. Right, but but whatever the case, this is a this is a creed or a song that 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 puts the truth to music. And so sometimes in music we say things a little differently, or we just like in poetry in the Bible we say things a little more um, flowery language. We we kind of build it up. Or we use different kinds of metaphors. Um, but this is a song that puts to music or puts to poetry at least Christian truth. And lastly, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, you see the first word of the poem is, is he. If you have an ESV, you have a little note at the bottom um, that says which, or it's who, or which. Um, but there's no question who this is talking about. So it says, the, the great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, who. So we say he was, and we begin these couplets. And so that's how we're going to look at this by the couplets here. So the first couplet is manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. And most of your Bibles have Spirit, capital S, right? Look down. Spirit, capital S, which is referring probably to the Holy Spirit. But if you have the ESV, again, you've got a lot of notes here. I think this poem has three separate notes that you have to read the tiny print at the bottom to figure out what's going on. It could be Spirit, Holy Spirit. It could also just mean Spirit um, in a spiritual sense. So we'll take a look at that. But the first phrase is manifested in the flesh. And this is, the word manifested is kind of like appeared, showed up. And so this actually tells us that, that Jesus is God and man. So there's this subtle way that Paul says this. He says it a specific way that shows us that Jesus showed up. And how did he show up? He showed up in the flesh. God showed up in the flesh. He's manifested in the flesh. We call this the incarnation, right? Carne, meat, flesh, right? Incarnation, he, he becomes... God in the flesh, God in meat, God in a body. Okay, he's Emmanuel, God with us. And this is incredibly important. Um, this is incredibly important, that God became man. This is the center of our theology. Jesus is man, Jesus is God. How does that work? I don't know, but the Bible says it and explains it in different places, that, that Jesus was God become man. And now, forever, Jesus is man. Right, so, so Jesus didn't come live on earth for 33 years, die for us, and then like, now he's not a man anymore. Jesus is still a man. He, and he always will be. And that, that's how he identifies uh, with us in a way. And that Jesus is the son of God and the son of man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is important because this is always, always, always attacked by cults and other religions. And clearly so. You ever like lay in bed at night and try to think, how did God become man? How is 
Jesus all God and all man all at the same time? That'll, that'll throw you for one. That'll, that'll keep you up or put you to sleep, one or the other, because it's so hard to grasp. And this is central to the Christian faith. Christian, Christ, this is important. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons get wrong. This is what every other religion gets wrong. Jesus is what they get wrong, or rather who they get wrong. But we know that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. Second phrase is a lot harder, vindicated by the Spirit. So it might be vindicated in spirit. The word for vindicated is the same word that we see in the New Testament for justified. But in this sense, it is a little bit different than the technical term for salvation. Um, it, it may mean that Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection, was vindicated. That his life's work, that his keeping of the law, that his, that his staying away from sin, that his pain for our sins, that his um, ascending to the Father has vindicated his work. That he's been vindicated. Or that God himself has vindicated Jesus for what he has done. Um, whatever the case is, um, he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated in spirit. And so you see both sides, this flesh-spirit thing that you see throughout Paul's writing. All right, in, in the fruit of the spirit, the flesh wars against the spirit. They don't want to do what the other one wants. They're opposed. But in this, in this sense, Jesus became flesh. He became man. In all the senses that we are, except without sin. And so then he's also vindicated in spirit or by the spirit. The second couplet is seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. And this is a little harder. What does it mean seen by angels? Well, there were angels all around at the resurrection. Um, when the women show up at the tomb, there's angels. Um, when Jesus goes, ascends into heaven, there's angels. Um, there's a lot of angelic activity around the resurrection. Or it could be some of those mysterious passages in the New Testament where it seems that Jesus appears to, to go to those demons or those spirits in prison and proclaim what he has done. Um, whatever the case is, is that Jesus was seen by angels. And not just like, oh, hey, there's Jesus. Not, not that, but observed by angels. That this is a big deal. And we also see the angelic spirit realm here again. So we had flesh, spirit, angels and then secondly here we have proclaimed among the nations and so the picture now goes to missions so he 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 is being proclaimed among the nations the church is responsible to reach the world with the good news we have been given a commission to tell every nation to the ends of the earth about the gospel of jesus christ so we see that that work going physically around the world now clearly it's a spiritual work but we see this physical um, nature of the earth going around the nations. The last couplet is believed on in the world and taken up in glory. And believed on in the world is just kind of follows the preached among the nations, proclaimed among the nations. This is what was happening. Paul went places and he preached the gospel and people came to Jesus. Not everybody did, but he had this, this confidence. If I go and preach the gospel... Some people are going to come to Jesus. And by the way, which is the same confidence we can have. Uh, often our evangelism doesn't happen or is kind of short-circuited because we, we don't, oh, I don't know all the arguments and I don't know how to refute uh, all these really smart people. Um, here's, here's the thing about evangelism. If you share the gospel, you've done your job. And now the Spirit's work, somehow he, he uses our words and makes them effective and gets to the hearts of some. And so we should, we ought to preach the gospel knowing that God will save some. We have that confidence. 
Last is taken up in glory. And so again, you have the world and glory. So you have, again, this physical and spirit thing going on. Taken up in glory has been meant to look at different things, but I think it's Jesus' ascension. And we often overlook this, right? We talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. Sometimes we forget about his life and we forget about his ascension. But it's really important that Jesus takes his disciples to a mountain. He tells them his last, his last words and then he goes up into the sky. And now, where is he? Well, we see a few chapters later in Acts that he's at the Father's right hand because Stephen sees into heaven and there's Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And so Jesus has ascended. What does that mean? That means he has now, he has now moved on from his earthly ministry to his heavenly reign. And so now he sends the Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, it's better for you if I go and send the Spirit here to empower the church. And again, we see that in Acts 2. The church is activated, started by the Spirit of God coming. Well, what does all this mean for us? Well, it means that the church is central to the plan of God. You need to be a part of a church. And you need to be involved in the church. And you need to be hurt by the church. And you need to forgive others that hurt you in the church. We are a family and families don't always get along well. But the family of God must be about love and forgiveness and discipline. Sometimes that's tough love. So I would, consi- I would ask all of you, if you're not a member of this church, to consider why you have not joined this church. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. Give yourself to the church. You are members of the church, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. This reminds me of one of the favorite things that my wife says every once in a while. Amy says, I love our church. I love, and she doesn't mean, man, we've got awesome facilities. <laughs> she says, I love our church. It means I love our people. He goes on to say, all who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and then the testimony for God would be lost in the world. We can all find excuses not to join a church. I don't like that person. They get on my nerves. He doesn't preach well. I don't like that, right? We, we can all find reasons not to. He says this, As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it, if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect pe- people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong, is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. So I leave you this morning with this awesome responsibility that we are the church of the living God. He dwells among us. He empowers us to go forward and do our mission boldly. So let's do that. As Village Bible Church, in this neighborhood and in your neighborhoods, when we gather and when we scatter, let's be the church. Let's live what we believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church and thank you for what you have done in this church. We thank you for the professions of faith and the baptisms that we've seen this year. We thank you for all the missions work that we see going on. And Lord, I pray, especially for those of us that have been Christians for a long time, that you would maybe reawaken us to the importance of the church, the centrality of the church, that it is the institution that you have established on earth to do your work. And for some reason, 
you work through weak, broken, messed up people. And you take us from weakness to strength. You take us um, from children to adults. Help us to mature and grow in you and help us to do that, first of all, um, by the understanding of the Bible, that the Bible would be central to everything that Village Bible Church does that we would never veer or stray. Lord, we pray for the elders, especially that you would give us wisdom as we help guide and lead this church. Help us to lead your church, not our church. And Father, today as we go, now as we learn more about you, about um, uh, what C.S. Lewis had to say in the screw tape letters and what the, the Bible says in the book of Acts and uh, talk about family vision statements and study the book of Judges and study the book of John and other things that we're about to go do. Lord, help us to, to do this in the strength that you provide. God, give us grace to deal with, with those in this church that are hard. We are those people sometimes. And Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown us that we did not deserve. And so help us to show grace to those who also do not deserve it around us, that we would be grateful and generous people because of what you've given us in Jesus. And Lord, be with us this week as we go to our jobs, as we go to school. Pray for all those going back to school that you would um, help them to live for you on campus, to do their work as unto the Lord. And Lord, that you would bless us indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.